Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Impossible Life. Do you remember as a child being given a task to complete and then whining out something like, but dad, that's impossible. Many Christians have the same response when they realize how unattainable the Christian life is, humanly speaking. Here's the question, however. Do we honestly believe that as the Bible says, with man, it is impossible, but with God, hmm, all things are possible. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I wanted to, and I know this might seem a little cliche on Mother's Day to dedicate the message to mothers, but hey, you know, what better place to dedicate it? You know what I dedicated last Mother's Day? I, I dedicated the message to Leslie, and Leslie couldn't make it. It was very sad. Uh, and then she didn't hear the message until I think only a few weeks ago. So it's been almost a year since, and I dedicated this message, Feminine Beauty. I don't know if you guys remember that message from last year. It was dedicated to Leslie. When the, when the message was being edited, for some reason that got trimmed out. So my one message that is dedicated to Leslie, it's edited out. So Leslie's like, you didn't dedicate that to me. I did dedicate that to you. So uh, I could dedicate this especially to Leslie, but this is technically for all women, as, as you will discover. Not even just mothers. This is a good classic dedicated uh, to women message. All right, let's pray. Father, for your glory, Lord, I ask that you would keep us sharp, that you would not allow us to get dull. Lord, I pray that we would not just get used to hearing sharp messages, messages that convict, and because we are around it, we feel we have the truth. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would reach out and grab a hold of that which you are setting before us this morning. That we would take it. We love you and we put our trust in you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I had a thought during kiddo time. And that was, Judah was mentioning that God requested one singular thing that Adam and Eve don't do. One. One thing. It had to do with the tree and that which is hanging on a tree. Isn't that fascinating? And there's one singular thing that we must do to be saved and to reverse the effects of what happened. Isn't that a really interesting thing? And you could say, well, it's just, is that it? One little thing? Well, that's what they could have said back then. One little thing. Don't do it. One little thing. Do it. It's the difference between life and death. Just a fascinating observation uh, because of what he said. The impossible life. <clears throat> now, I don't know that I should give away what I'm about to say, and so I have to strategically approach this message because I want you to wriggle a little in your seat on this one. I want you to feel the full gravity of it, that we have been commissioned to live a life that I am about to describe as utterly impossible. Now, we have a couple different options. We could justify the fact that it is just impossible, and because of the fact that it's impossible, we could excuse ourselves based on the fact that God understands. Okay, classic Christianity of the modern era. In other words, God wouldn't actually expect me to do that. He knows I can't do that, and then we can get 
chapter and verse on the point that says we can't do it. And then you, you, as long as you hang out in all the chapters that's, and all the verses that say you can't, then that somehow excuses us from obedience, which says, but you must. You guys see a little tension in there? I mean, how unfair and unjust is a God to commission you to do something impossible and then also acknowledge, yeah, I know you can't do it. How rude! Okay, some of the mothers in here are going, now, how does this affect me as a mother? I said it's dedicated to you. I'm not going to just talk about motherhood. You'll, you'll see. <laughs> the impossible life. Now, here's what I'm going to do with this. This is a message that is specifically aimed towards the man. Okay, now again, the women are going to be like, what? <laughs> you have to realize, if a man catches this, his wife will be very happy. Okay? As men, when we curtail the expectations of the gospel and we justify our masculinity under the banner of mediocrity, it's just like, hey, I'm better than that guy down the street. You know, often, every single one of us guys, and every one of us that is men in here that is married, has had that need to justify. When, when our wives... They know that there's more for masculinity. I don't know where they get it from other than just God. He plants something within a woman that says a man should be so much more. Well, for whatever reason, it's not that we as men don't have it, but it's slow in its maturity. Because women seem to pop out of their mother's womb saying, men should be so much more. Little girls seem to know it. You see, a man should be so much more. And for whatever reason, women seem to have a sensitivity to that point. And so you bring that into marriage, and the classic thing that happens is called nagging. Honey, you should be so much more. I believe you could be a greater man. I believe that you should give more of your life to God. I believe that you should be more attentive to me as a wife. I believe that you should spend more time with your kids. I believe that you should have more integrity in your business. I believe... You know, yada, 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 yada. You keep going down. You're supposed to be reaching the poor and the orphan and the widow, honey. And the man literally has smoke coming out of his ears. He doesn't know how in the world to do that. And so what does he do? He retreats into justification. No man can do that, is what he says. There is not a man alive that can do that. You show me one. This is, this is good guy talk. Okay, and then we get together like, yeah, my wife said the same thing. What do they expect of us? At least I'm not cheating on them. I'm not hitting them. I'm not doing all these things that the guys down the street are doing. I'm a pretty good guy. Pretty good guy. That's what this message should have been called. That would have been a good title. I'm a pretty good guy. Well, God has not commissioned you to be a pretty good guy. He's commissioned you to be conformed into the image of his son. Isn't that an amazing statement? So there is a guy who did live it. Just because you're not, he's not down the street doesn't mean there wasn't a guy that didn't live it. His name is Jesus. And by the way, I don't want to give too much away, but Christianity is made up of this Jesus living inside of you and expressing his life in and through you. All right. The six arenas of the Christian man's life. Now, 
For those of you that aren't married, you can cherish the fact that you may not yet have six arenas. Believe me. The, those of us that are married in here and have you know, business ministry dimensions to our existence, this list is a pretty hefty one, and we feel the weight of it uh, on an ongoing basis. So let's go through them. First of all, you have God. Well, the Christian man needs to tend to his relationship with God. You know, and then you have people like John Wesley that say, give the best hours of your day unto God. The best hours? Hey, I, I got five other arenas I need to tend to here. And then you have people like Reese Howes that are on his knees for 11 hours a day. Ouch! Well, that's, that's him. Obviously, he didn't get anything else done in life. Then there's guys that wore out floorboards because they were kneeling. What do we do with these stories as men? It's like, well, that's a special calling. we got God, a heaven-come-to-earth devotional life with his God. Biblical study, prayer, givenness to the pursuit of God, to know your God. Right at the top of a man's list. Okay, let's look at the next one, his wife. He's supposed to have a fairy tale, intimate relationship with his wife. There's closeness, there's intimacy. He has a sensitivity to to her needs. He can read her across the room. She needs me. He'll sweep sweep her out of a room where she's feeling uncomfortable, take her off to the side and say, are you all right, honey? All of us guys, and you're like, great, don't give any more illustrations, Eric. Okay? I'm just getting to the second obligation. You know, these are the arenas of a Christian man's life. His kids... He gives a world-class investment into the lives of his children. You know, we all know what it's like to have a minimal investment into our lives, probably from our dads. But I'm talking about a world-class investment where if raising children was an Olympic event, he would win the gold medal. And every single one of us guys begins to shrink. It's like, I can't even think about it. That's such a heavy weight. I know. I'm just going to keep adding to it. Friends and family. You see, this isn't just your own you know, wife and children. This is like your extended family. Your mother, father, in-laws, brothers, sisters. You know, your wives or your spouses, brothers and sisters. Then you have your whole collection of friends. I travel all over the world. I have friends everywhere. I love people. It'd be better if I didn't like people. Because then people probably wouldn't like me. And then we wouldn't have this whole friendship thing that we need to tend to this man is kind consistent honorable and thoughtful in his remembrance and service unto his friends and extended family members business we could call this the financial dimension the economic dimension of a man's life because some of you may not have a business per se that you run but you have a dimension of your life which is the tent making side paul was a tent maker he had a side of his life in which He handled commerce, basically. Well, as a man, we need to be uncompromising in our excellence and diligence in these business dealings and financial investments. There's not a spot of darkness in our life. We handle this arena of our life with absolute integrity. If it was an Olympic event, we'd win the gold. Ministry. Hudson Taylor-like givenness to the preaching of the gospel and the practical rescue of the lost, the dying, the orphans, and the widows around him. I just went through six arenas. I have five fingers. Uh, Six arenas of 
the Christian man's life. By the way, I'm going to make this statement that every single one of these six arenas is commissioned by God that we be excellent in them. In other words, there is no excuse in the Bible that says, yeah, you can neglect your God. He'll understand because you're a busy man that you should neglect your wife. There is no such commission. There is no such commission that you should forsake your children. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons you could justify it. I mean, there's been great men that have had great ministries that have changed the world, and they lost their kids. And their wives were absolutely miserable the whole time. But guess what? Hey, that goes with the territory. I serve God first. You know how a man is fit to lead the church of Jesus Christ? It's that he's proved himself in his home. How does a man prove himself in his home? He proves himself in his prayer closet. You start with a prayer closet, and guess what? That equals a great marriage. You start with a great marriage, and you prove yourself there, and guess what? You'll be successful with your family. It just will work. You see, if you're great with your wife and great with your God, it's sort of hard not to be great with your kids. It's a natural byproduct. And if you're great with your God and with your wife and your kids, did you know that that should flow into the other areas of your life? Now, here's what's going on in some of your minds. You see, Eric, if I'm great with my God, like you're talking, you know, all these wear out the floorboard types of stories, thanks a lot for bringing them up. But if I'm great with my God, I'm not going to have time to be great with my wife and my kids. That's one of the most common justifications we have in modern Christianity. And we, and here's, here's what I'm going to go into. Remember I said there's six arenas? I want you to pick your 2.5 arenas. In other words, you have a certain capacity as a man. And I'm going to, and this is somewhat of a guess, okay? But I've thought about this for years of my life. That basically a man, in his natural state, has the capacity to be excellent in 2.5 of those six arenas. He can't do all six. I don't know if any of you have ever tried. It is one overwhelming task to be great. Now, you can throw a little time in each one, but guess what? They're all going to be sabotaged. If you try and do all six, all six of them are mediocre. And most of us as men cannot stand mediocrity in all six areas of our life. We at least want to give ourselves wholly to one area. What do we tend to give ourselves to? Uh huh. Business. You see, if we're going to be good at something, it's what the other men around us would esteem. It's what the world around us would esteem. And so most of us are spending our life and our energy in one arena. Now, we try and maintain the other ones, but this is what I've noticed in trying to live life at the capacity that I am humanly capable of doing. 2.5, I can't do the 0.5, seems to be the point in which a man begins to frazzle. You must face the facts that it is impossible to do it all. Okay, now, this is not a defeated message, by the way. I'm just laying the groundwork. Because remember I said, in our native natural state, this is what we have the capacity to do. Warren Buffett has the capacity to be excellent in 2.5 areas of his life. He cannot do all six. Now, let me add a little caveat to that without God. You see, there's some impressive men out there that many of us have seen like athletes. I mean, the old Tiger Woods phenomenon 
where a man gives himself to one arena, which, by the way, golf wasn't even in the six arenas. I know some of the guys are like, I noticed that. <laughs> you see, if you give yourself to a skill, you can be excellent at it, and the world can take notice and applaud you, and you can actually make money. And you can say, yeah, and I'm helping the business dimension of my life, which is one of my commissions. Sure. As a career, yeah, you could be a golfer. However, when you spend yourself and give yourself in the natural realm to a singular thing, to be excellent, to be known by the world, you inevitably, I'm not just guessing, I'm saying inevitably, you are compromising the foundation of the rest of your Christian life. If you're going to be good at just one thing, it's God. You give yourself to Jesus Christ. However, when you give yourself to Jesus Christ, you're going to find a funny effect takes place. And God starts pointing every time you get into his presence on the other five arenas. He says, you represent me. So since you're spending so much time with me, I'm going to tutor you on the fact that, see these other five arenas? I'm going to make you a picture of heaven on earth in those arenas so that this world will know what God can do in and through a man. All right? So I got an email this week. Actually, it was just yesterday. I thought it was so funny uh, because it fit really well. It was from a homeschool uh, curriculum company. I won't tell you who it is just to preserve them. But uh, they, they sent out this uh, email, and I guess this is my guess, that everyone that typically is signing up and getting curriculum is a mother because I got a Mother's Day email uh, from this curriculum company. Eric. Do you ever worry that you are not the perfect mother? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I just gave you six arenas. Six arenas. And in those arenas, there is a commission of God unto my soul to be excellent in those domains. However, this is just for all the guys in here that are feeling the weight of this message. I want to realize... That there are other dimensions that the world will tell you are important that you do not need to be responsible to be excellent at. For instance, one of them, motherhood. I am not responsible to be the perfect mother. Isn't that an amazing thought? Freedom! Which is why this is dedicated to mothers. That's my creative way of making it sound like this is about Mother's Day. So the two facts to face. Remember that last statement was, we must face the facts that this is utterly impossible. Okay? So if we're going to face facts, let's start facing facts. Let's make sure we're facing the right facts. Okay, now, those of you that have been around Ellerslie have heard me say, ad nauseum, many, many times, fact, faith, and experience. The three different characters that are attempting to walk the ridgepole, which is the impossible life. The first character is fact, which is the word of God. It is holy scripture. It is... God himself, it is the enunciation of reality. God's truth on the matter. The second character is faith. The third one is experience. We're faith in this story. Fact can walk the ridgepole. It, just, it has perfect balance. It just pulls it off. It is impossible. And it pulls off the impossible. But as long as faith stays focused on fact, it maintains balance and can walk the ridgepole as well. However, there's a third character. His name is experience. We could also call it in this context, natural law. Okay, there's a natural law. And that is, say I take one of these blue chairs and I throw it up in the air. What's natural law state? 
Yeah, it's going to fall back down to the ground. Okay? That's natural law. Now, our experience is based on natural law. And so what does our experience state? If we didn't even know anything about natural law, and someone said, well, I'm going to throw a chair up in the air, what would your experience testify to the fact that it's going to do when it hits its height? What's going to happen next? It's going to keep going? No, my experience states that it will come back down to the ground. Okay, so let's talk about manhood. What's your experience state? You start giving yourself, going, I'm going to be a great man. I'm going to give myself to my God. I'm going to give myself to my wife. I'm going to give myself to my children. I'm going to give myself and be excellent, marked with integrity in my business dealings. I'm going to give myself to ministry. I'm going to pour out my life. And then what happens? You give yourself over here, and what starts happening over here? Disrepair. So then you turn over here, and then this falls apart over here. I remember when we first started in ministry, we were getting invitations all over the world. And so we had invitations in Africa. We had invitations in Australia, invitations in uh, South America. We went down to Australia, and I remember all of our other things in America fell apart. It's like we weren't here to answer the phone. And so everything was falling apart over here, but we were trying to serve down in Australia. And so what did we end up doing? We decided we can only stay in the United States, or North America was actually our, our decision. We could not tend to an international ministry. We didn't have the support staff. We couldn't do it. Well, that's how we as men are. We shore up ourselves. We go over here and we're like, I'm going to serve the poor. And then our marriage falls apart. I'm going to build a ministry to help people. And then our kids start going wild. We're like, okay, it must be the ministry that's at fault. And so I'm going to close down the ministry and now spend time with my kids. No, that's actually a noble thing to do. But I want you to realize, as we're navigating this life, I want us to not reason based just on experience. I want to reason based on fact. God's word. So when we're facing facts, let's make sure we're facing heavenly law instead of natural law. So the facts of natural law. The impossible is simply impossible. I know that that sounds like a fairly basic statement, but if something's impossible, what would our conclusion be? It's impossible. And it's impossible for a man to live successfully in six dimensions of his life. It's impossible. Okay, so natural law would state the impossible is simply impossible. Now, I don't know how well you know your Bible, but it's funny, but God has a completely different statement about impossibilities. Exactly opposite of what that says, yet every one of us in here knows that is true. The impossible is, by definition, impossible. So in here, we can say, well, that's impossible. You're right. It is impossible, which only sets the stage for fact. Have you ever turned to God and asked him what he thinks about the impossible? Come to him. Say, God, this is impossible. What do you think about it? He gets a big smile on his face. With men, this is impossible. Now, you notice the dot, dot, dot. I'm trimming off the second half of this line. It's for a purpose. I want you to meditate upon this. And you're like, yeah. With men, this is impossible. That's God's statement on the matter. With you, it is impossible. You're a guy. Yeah, you can't do it. And then you start going, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I knew I couldn't. Could you tell my wife that? Because she keeps bothering me on that point. She actually thinks I can be a great husband, father, great Christian man who's pouring out his life and then handling his business dealings all perfectly. I mean, come on. I can't carry such a weight. 
No, he's not done here. Oh, here's another one. With men it is impossible. Well, there's two different scriptures. There's actually quite a few on it. I just trimmed it down to two. Okay, the facts of heavenly law. Uh-oh, I'm giving a lot away here. Look at that parenthetical statement, for some reason with a period at the end of it. With God, nothing is impossible. Now, what were you saying about impossibilities? Well, Eric, have you ever tried it? Yes, I've tried it. I know how impossible it is. I know that with me, it is impossible. If I'm the only contributor to the situation, I know how impossible it is. Okay, you don't need to try and convince me. I already know it. I already came to that conclusion. I can't do it. I can't. However, I'm going to face the facts. What facts am I going to face? Am I going to turn around and look at the natural law and say, well, with me, it's impossible? No, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to stare straight at the scriptures. My God who cannot lie has spoken. And he's making a statement to my soul and to yours. With God, nothing is impossible. Oh, well, there it is. Luke 137. With God, nothing shall be impossible. By the way, the context is with man, it is impossible. With God, nothing shall be impossible. With God, all things are possible. Now, so what were you saying about the impossible again? Well, I'm sure God isn't meaning this. What do you think he's meaning? What's the good of taking anything God's talking about if it doesn't apply to the behavior of a man? He's not talking about us just flapping our wings and flying around. He's talking about us obeying scripture. And this is a clear commission. Most of us are, you know, looking at statements like this and saying, well, with God, all things are possible. It means I can walk through walls. I can flutter around like a bird. I could swim underwater and breathe underwater. Well, I'm not saying God couldn't do that. That just isn't the point. The point is God has given you a clear command that is impossible. And he says, do it. And you're like, but I can't. He says, I know you can't. I can in and through you. That's the gospel. The gospel is us recognizing we can't and then saying, so, but you can? Well, I know you can. You did it 2,000 years ago. Thank you for doing that, by the way, Jesus. No, and I intend to do it again in you today. And that's the gospel. The gospel isn't just Jesus 2,000 years ago. It says he ever lives to make intercession for us. That means the same work he was doing then of standing in the gap for us and being our strong man, of living that perfect life and giving the virtue of heaven to those in need on this earth. Same work. He's still giving himself to the operation of Christianity. You need to be saved. You know what it says about Jesus? He saves us to the uttermost. That's what he does. He doesn't just get a start. It's like, okay, I gave you a good start 2,000 years ago, and now he's like resting in heaven, being fanned and fed grapes. He's working. You know that our God works? He does. He's active. And he wants to work in and through you. But the problem is, we're lazy. We've justified our repose. We're getting fat. Remember last week? Uh huh. The belly God. We're getting fat. We're justifying and rationalizing why we can sit back and say, oh, God doesn't intend me to do that. And as a result, our work ethic stinks when it comes to spiritual matters and practical matters in our life. We've justified the mediocrity in our existence instead of coming to God and saying, God, I want you to show this world that you are still the God of the impossible. And I want you to use this as your raw material. Ah. Ah. 
facing the facts at the Red Sea. After all, seas don't just part. Okay, now I've read this to you twice in the past, oh, I think it's been about nine months, okay? So this is going to be the third time. But I tell you what, I'm going to find a few more excuses in the next year to get this in. This is such a great story. This is Josephus' account of the Red Sea. Do you guys remember this? Where Moses is backed up with the children of Israel and the, the Egyptians are coming after them. They're in between two mountain passes. And, you know, this is called this narrow stretch and they're backed up to the water. It's hopeless. It's over! They have no chance! Okay? When you're in those situations, which is this message right here, the six arenas of a Christian man's life, you're backed up against the, the waters like, I can't do that. I might as well surrender to the Egyptians. That's exactly how the Israelites reasoned. However, Moses reasoned completely opposite of that. He stared at the facts of God's nature, whereas the Israelites were looking at experience. Sure, you're backed up. They have the most mighty host coming against you. They're in, in, I mean, truly, it's an indefensible situation. The best thing to do would be to surrender and become slaves again to the Egyptians. Maybe they'll show mercy to us. You know how many of us live our lives that way? In defeat. We're defeated before the battle even comes because we look at the fact that chairs, when they go up, must come down. And God says, you ever tried? You know, I'll throw that chair up. I'll show you what will happen with it. We're like, huh? No, that isn't the point, is that chairs float. Listen to this, though. After all, seas don't just part. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen many seas part in my lifetime. Okay? The facts of the natural law. What would the natural law say? Now, when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they prepared to fight them. And by their multitude, they drove them into a narrow place. For the number that pursued after them was 600 chariots with 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen, all armed. The Israelites have no weaponry. It's a whole bunch of women and children. There's men, but they're brick makers. They're not warriors. They don't even have weapons. What are you going to do, swing your goat at them? (laughs) This is a massive armed force. They also seized on the passages which by they imagined the Hebrews might fly. So they're literally blockading every out, every point of escape, shutting them up between inaccessible precipices in the seas. The Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. So they laid the blame on Moses and forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom. And this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet while he encouraged them and promised their deliverance. They're throwing stones. What are you doing? Your wife's like, I think God has a plan. And you're like burping and scratching saying, hey, I'm better than all the other guys around in this neighborhood. In other words, you are literally throwing stones at the one that is saying, but there is hope. There is more. There is more to this thing called masculinity. God has not brought you to this narrow channel only to see you get defeated and you're lost. God has brought you here to prove his power to part Red Seas. So, while he encouraged them and promised their deliverance. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers out of his trust in God, he said, It is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. I don't care how dark it gets. And I don't care how weak you may feel as a man. It is 
No better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. God has not started a work only to miscarry and abort it in your masculinity. God intends to build you into a mighty man and a mighty demonstration of what he can do on this earth in and through a yielded vessel. It is no better than madness at this point to despair. Okay, now let's look at this from a different angle. I know what the natural is saying. You're closed in. You're hemmed in. It's impossible. You can't do anything. I know what it means when you stare at those six dimensions of masculinity. I know how impossible it is. I've said to Leslie more than a few times, it seems like every time I would go over here, then my thoughtfulness and that romantic dimension of my marriage seems to flatten out. It takes work to be romantic. Okay, it's a lot easier before marriage, okay? But in the marriage season, it's just like, wow. And you just want your wife to say, it's all right. I don't care. Let's just have a business relationship. Thank you, honey. That, that makes it so much easier. There's an itch to such a conclusion because you're looking for ways to make it work. Couldn't my kids go to a boarding school and I could send them notes and gifts every now and then? Because then they would be well tended to. And, you know, because I, I feel good about the headmaster there. And I, I just feel that I would be more successful in this dimension of my life. Instead, I'm constantly having to face the fact that my kids don't have enough of me. Are there such a thing as substitute dads, fill-in dads? I could pay them. I've been working really hard over here. I have some money. I just don't have time. If you're a dad in here or, or a husband, you know these things. There is, you're, you're looking for the outs. You're backed up into the corner and there's no other options. And so you're reasoning through the natural. If I, we surrender to the Egyptians and we plead for mercy, I think they'll be merciful to us. Sure, we'll go back to making bricks and yeah, they probably won't give us straw. But you know what? At least living is better than dying. Don't give up now. It is better than madness. It is no better than madness. It is no better than madness to forsake your God now. Believe him. Okay, let's look at heavenly law. This is Moses' prayer. According to Josephus, the great Hebrew historian, of what Moses prayed while backed up to the Red Sea. Oh, this is what I wanted to get into this mess. I always have to find excuses to get this in. This is so good. So this is Moses praying. Thou art not ignorant, O Lord, that it is beyond human strength and human contrivance to avoid the difficulties we are now under. But it must be thy work altogether to procure the deliverance to this army which has left Egypt at thy appointment. We despair of any other assistance or contrivance and have recourse only to that hope we have in thee. And if there be any method that can promise us an escape by thy providence, we look up to thee for it. God... I have this version of masculinity which seems incapable and impotent. It doesn't have the capacity to accomplish that which it needs to accomplish. So I do not look to me to save myself. I look to you. And I say you have the solution for me because you would not have brought me into this place only to see me devoured by the Egyptians. Or as men to be devoured by my circumstances, to only have my marriage fail, my children fall apart and fall away from God. And to see me you know, thrown into debtor's prison. And to see my ministry literally fail and bring a reproach to your name. I know you have not brought me this far to leave me that way. So I look to you. And let it come quickly. 
And manifest thy power to us. And do thou raise up this people into good courage and hope of deliverance. Who are deeply sunk into a disconsolate state of mind. We are in a helpless place. I love this line. We are in a helpless place, but still it is a place that thou possesses. I know it looks helpless, but guess who owns this property? Guess who made this place that the world may say that's a desolate place. That's a hopeless place. That's an impossible corner. God owns that property. Specially named Impossible Corner. He loves that place. And he brought you to his place so that he could show that he possesses this moment. Still, I love his reasoning. Still, the sea is thine. The mountains also that enclose us are thine. So that these mountains will open themselves if thou commands them. And the sea also, if thou commands it, will become dry land. Nay, we might escape by a flight through the air if thou should determine we should have that way of salvation. Okay, so as a man, we're backed up. Mountains on one side, Red Sea on one side, and all the host of the Egyptians coming against us. Yes, it is impossible to live this life. However, you turn to God and you say, but God, you're God. And if you want me to live the triumphant life that you commissioned me to, you can make these mountains part ways and make a path through them. You can cause this Red Sea to dry up and I can walk across it on dry land. You could give me wings to fly out of this impossible state. Do you believe your God is able? That's the key question of Christianity. Do you believe he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Okay, so we face the facts at the Red Sea. Now, how are we facing the facts at Jericho? Come up to Jericho. You've got this walled city that reaches up to the heavens. I mean, what good are you going to you know, do to a walled city? Imagine you're a man, okay, and God says, yeah, you need to take down that stronghold in the land of promise. You're like, what? How do you take down a stronghold, God? This is the way most of us deal with like, our lust. And we're like, I, so try coming up to your stronghold and kicking it. All it does is hurt your toe. And you're like, ah, oosh. And guess what? All that happened was a little dust got knocked off the wall. Pfft. You can't tear down a stronghold. Try pushing against it. Well, it's not going anywhere. So God says, uh, will you let me do it? You mean you want to do it, God? Yeah, I need you as my vehicle to believe me, to trust me. To not stare at natural law, because all of us would give up and say, yeah, you can't tear down that stronghold. I'm giving up. He's going to live with the stronghold in the land. I mean, what are we going to do? You know, push it down, kick it down. Yeah, right. You see, you're staring at the natural law. Start staring at the heavenly law, and you come to a completely different conclusion. Oh, my God could tear that thing down. I mean, it's but a breath, little pinky move. And it's like, it all falls flat. God wins. God is not intimidated by the things we're intimidated by. After all, walled cities don't just collapse. Well, they do when God is in the story. You cannot reason after the natural anymore. You're a Christian. You begin to live your masculinity to the level and the heights of God Almighty instead of the lows and the defeats of modern men. Facing the facts of your life. After all, men just can't pull off all six arenas of life well. Now, I know that there's this question sort of waiting in the air. So, Eric, are you saying 
that you're taking care of all six dimensions of your life well? Well, I don't really want to have to answer that question. However, I can say, the life I'm living right now is impossible. It just needs to be more impossible. That's what I would say. I literally, and my wife could testify of this too, we see the supernatural enabling grace of our God. We've been calling it the impossible life about six, seven years now. God, we're called to the impossible life. We know it. And we know that you're the only one that can live it in and through us. So grow us up unto the full stature, the full measure of that. Are we at the full stature, the full measure? Not even close. However, we have something. I've surpassed the 2.5. I'm carrying weights that, when I was 28, I know the students in here know this, but when I was 28, I'm 41 now, I was in the hospital with a stress disorder. Extreme chest pains, I couldn't breathe, my left arm was going, doing funny things. And I literally could not handle the weights in my life. The weights I carry now at the age of 41 are probably, oh, I don't know, and I don't want to just pick a big number, but 100 times more than what I had when I was 28, and I have not an ounce of anxiety in my life. In other words, God has built me to be able to carry weight. And ironically, one of the number one things that has built me is being a father. Children are strength in my hand. It's really interesting. It's like being obedient and allowing the other dimensions of my life to flourish and to say, God will give me grace for that. Actually gives me grace for other things. It's like they feed on each other. Just like I said, when you give your life to God, well, your marriage will succeed. Your children will flourish. But if you begin to rationalize and clip the wings of certain areas of our life, almost inevitably the first wing to be clipped is God. Almost inevitably. And you can't figure out as a man why it's not working. You're trying to obey God in these other areas. But you're missing the primary area. Because the only way you could even do the other five areas is with the first area. Nailed down well in your life. The impossible life. Bewildering excellence in all six arenas. Imagine having a relationship with God which was a heaven-come-to-earth devotional life with him. Literally, you were hungry for the word of God on a daily basis. You knew how to rightly handle the scriptures. Your prayer life actually worked. You weren't just throwing a few prayers out just to do your daily duty. You were engaged in the matters of the heavenlies. You were waiting on God and you knew what his burden was. And you were using this vehicle as a house of prayer for all nations. And you see the faithfulness of God in answered prayer. What would happen to you? Wouldn't that be amazing? Now most of us, I mean, we're used to saying, well, yeah, but not everyone can have that. Who told you that? Who passed along that thought into your head? Because I say, wipe it clean from the slate. Start over with a new premise point. God commissions you. God enables you. God has a devotional life waiting for you. But you must rise up as a man and take it. And you must ask God to train you in it. You do not become a master carpenter overnight any more than you become a master devotee. I was going to say devotional guy, uh, but that's a funny way of saying it. A master prayer or a master student of scripture. You have to learn how to handle the tools. You have to learn how to use the wood properly, how to cut it properly so that it doesn't splinter. You have to learn the trade. So I don't want you to rush it. I want you to recognize the fact that if you are hungry for it, God will equip you for it. 
But you must first believe. If you despair, then you will never have it. If you doubt that it's possible, you will never get it. It's gained by faith. You are saved by grace through faith. You need grace for time of help in time of need. You have it, but you must believe your God for it. Could you imagine having a marriage relationship which was truly fairy tale esque in its intimacy? Where you knew that your spouse felt fulfilled in the time you spent with them, they felt understood? That the words you chose to speak were words that were appropriate? As opposed to your spouse seeing the worst side of you? Spouses get the bad side of us. You know, the society gets the good side, and then our spouse, they, they love us anyways. Okay? And I need to get vent a little frustration here. Is that the way we treat our spouse? You know, Leslie and I have come to the conclusion that our spouse should get the best side of us. If I'm going to vent some frustration, I should vent, vent it towards you guys. Give my wife the better side. Isn't that a bizarre twist on it? Now, how about this? How about I'm Jesus to my wife and to you? What a novel concept. What if we allowed God to permeate each of these dimensions of our life with an expectation that he is not just willing, but able? And he will accomplish it. See, that's why this is devoted to uh, not just mothers, but all women. Could you imagine if men caught this? Now, I realize that if women don't catch the same thing in their life, because they have, I, don't, I didn't write down the dimensions of a woman's life. However, it's going to be a parallel. In fact, women might even argue that we have more than six. You ever read Proverbs 31? Kids, imagine having such a relationship with your kids that your kids want to follow you in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. You know, one of our prayers from the beginning because we, we look at the Booths, William and Catherine Booth. There's a lot of bad examples in Christian leadership over the years of you know, kids that went you know, the opposite direction, going, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with my parents' ministry. Well, you know, I'm willing to just do whatever it takes that my kids have a taste in their mouth of Jesus Christ, which makes them want more. I want them, they don't have to do what I do. I don't care if Hudson's up here leading Ellerslie. That isn't my great agenda for his life. I want to see him all in for Jesus Christ. So the Booths, what did they have, eight children? All eight of their children went into ministry. The men that married their daughters were so impacted by William and Catherine Booth that the men took the name Booth when they married their daughters. We want to be like you, Ma and Pa. Please. Even the ones that we're marrying in. Oh, I haven't seen that. But that's what we want to reinvigorate in the Christian idea. That we don't just need to fail in our children because we're serving God with abandon. We need to believe that God will reach us in every dimension. I know it's impossible. I understand that. But we serve the God of the impossible. I'm not adding things to this list that he didn't add to the list. And that's my key point here. Remember I said golf isn't on the list? Many of us as men put things into the list that are not primaries. And we spend time on those things. And here's what I would say to you as men. Cut them out. You have no excuse for those six areas if you're wasting your life on an arena that isn't even engaged in one. Okay, now career, and there's different things. Like I said, ministry has different 
looks to it. I mean, you could have a sports ministry where you go and play basketball, and I'm sure your basketball skills might help. However, I want you to stay focused and marked with integrity in your soul for how you are building your life and what you are spending your time on. Friends, family, business, ministry. I tell you what, ministry, our philosophy here at Ellerslie is if ever it is a choice between family and ministry, family wins, always. Now, of course, it makes sense. If it's ever a choice between God, family, and ministry, God wins, okay? But God is sensitized to these things. He knows what he's commissioned me to. He's not just going to challenge me to forsake my family for the next 10 years and go into a little hermit's cottage, say, God's called me. In other words, he's also called me to take care of that which has been entrusted to me within my jurisdictional range, which is my wife, my kids, my flock, if you want to look at it that way as a church. I'm responsible. And so at Ellerslie, Leslie can always get in touch with me. If there is something, Sandy literally has the right to walk up to the front in the middle of a session and say, Leslie needs you. If my kids need me for anything, everyone at Ellerslie will know I will leave everything here in a moment to go tend to it. Now, if it's just a little skirmish somewhere, it's like I need to be aware of something, that's, that's a different thing. Like you need to be aware that Dubberdoo needs a little discipline when you get home. Well, that doesn't mean I need to run home at that moment. However, I need to be sensitive in that moment. How much of a discipline does Dubberdoo need? In other words, we need to be ready as men to tend to first things first. If our God's calling us, we go into the prayer closet. doesn't matter if it's at two in the morning. We are ready and willing at any turn. And that goes for our wife, goes for our kids. That's the extension Our ministry must not rule our life. God rules our life. And the way he does it will tend to the other arenas if we're doing it well. And Ellerslie students know this. What good is it for me to pass on to them and disciple them well and forsake my kids? What example am I? And so even Ellerslie students, go, 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 Eric, go. That's the attitude we must begin to cultivate. And yes, it is impossible with men. We must live with untiring givenness, aggressively running the race without reprieve, carrying weights far too heavy for any mere man to carry. And we must rejoice and be marked by all the virtue of heaven every moment of the entire journey. Woo! That is one intense calling. But it is possible with God. And Jesus, looking upon them, said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Built to carry the impossible weights. If you look at these different examples, Proverbs 31 example, most women today, whenever they get associated with Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31 has multiple dimensions to it. I believe it doesn't just showcase the feminine attributes in the body of Christ, but it also demonstrates the bride of Christ. It is one wholly dependent and given and working, laboring hard to bring about honor to the head, to see that their man is established at the gate. Our man is Jesus Christ. Okay, so I do think it it is a picture of the bride of Christ, but I also think it showcases the feminine call. And it is ridiculously impossible. Okay, if any women have ever sat down and spent any time with it, it's, it's the equivalent of this message I'm giving to the men, just in a different angle. And women all over this generation in Christianity are mocking Proverbs 31. 
It's like, well, did you know, ladies, before you continue to chuckle at Proverbs 31, you need to remember that it is the canon of Scripture. Okay, so let's show reverence to it. I recognize that it's impossible, but let's show reverence to it. And then let's stare at the facts in the face. God is the God of the impossible. We live with expectancy that God can, even though we can't. Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 11. You know that one where he literally is scourged, mocked. I mean, five times he receives stripes, you know, 39 stripes. The guy lives it. But he's untiring, and his example is truly, utterly impossible. The guy was stoned, which means he was killed and his head was smashed. He's brought outside the city of Leicester. What does he do? He hops back up and goes back in. How do you like that for a template? Yeah, that's the way we as men live. Untiring, unflagging, unstoppable. Paul the Apostle could not be stopped. He was on a mission. And he, you know what Paul means? Diminutive or short man. Brick. The guy's a little short guy. And according to history, bald with a big nose. Not that impressive. And they could not stop him. It was not like he was some Samson in the physical realm. He was a little diddly squat guy. Filled with the power of Almighty God. Christ's example. Bearing the impossible burden. You know what? Jesus carried the impossible life. You know what he lived? The impossible life. He lived the impossible life to see that the impossible life could be accomplished in you. Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of the faith. Just read any one of these and you will see an impossible life. First, God needs a willing vessel. Is there anyone who will simply believe? God cannot perform the impossible without a willing vessel. So what he's looking for is faith. What he's looking for is someone who will simply say, I believe my God. My God cannot lie, and he's promised. He'll do it. Childlike faith. That's what we as men need. Our boys will quickly surpass us if we don't quickly latch on, because our boys are going to be hearing these messages too while we're twiddling our thumbs, justifying and rationalizing our mediocrity. And it's going to be sort of embarrassing when they grow up to be heroes of the faith and we're still living these diddly squat, mediocre, justified lives. Let's lead by example. Let's show them what it ought to be. Let's make it hard for them to pass us. That's the commission to us as men. Let's set the standard high and let our boys labor to go beyond us. My desire is to be a stepping stone. And I want Hudson and I want Deborah Dew to go farther than me. But I want to make it hard for them to go farther than me. I don't want to make it easy. Next Our God must build within these men his very own work ethic. The thing I want to emphasize now is the concept of work ethic. You see, the issue that we're dealing with is one of believing that something can be accomplished. If you don't believe it can be accomplished, you will have no work ethic towards it. You will give up quickly. I have a message called the Christian work ethic, which I'm not going to give now, even though, oh, I was baited all week long to say if I could just somehow stick that in. Oh, it's a good message. I would love for each and every one of you to freshly listen to that message. It is one powerful message about what will change us in our daily work. God works. It's a basic premise point in our doctrinal understanding of work. Work is not your enemy. Christians, almost every sphere of life, if not every sphere of life, understands the value of hard work. But there's one sector of life, 
known as modern Christians that are paranoid about work. Well, I don't, I don't want to do any work uh, because I don't want to you know, defraud God of his work. It's a very interesting muddled mess where we even bring up the word work on the screen in a, in a church and everyone goes, oh, I don't think we're supposed to talk about work. Okay, first and foremost, here's the premise. God works. He didn't just work in the past. He still works. And that doesn't mean sort of like, have you tried faith? It works. It's not just, have you tried God? He works. It's that he actually labors. He goes to work each day. He goes to work 24-7. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. His work is perfect. His work is honorable and glorious. And so we have these different aspects of his work. First of all, he has work. He has work that he's completed. And he has work that he's still doing. And that this work is perfect. When he does work, he does it well. Can that be said of us? How about this statement? His work is honorable and glorious. You see, God's work is you. And you are like that clay which is tempting or attempting to push against the potter saying, Hey, leave me alone. I can do this myself. And if you try and make yourself with your own pottery skills, make yourself pleasing unto your God, you will fail. And that's the work that God doesn't want you to mess with. You are not the potter. He is. Let him have the clay. You are merely the lump. You give this lump to your God and then let him work on you. But in the process, he is planting himself in you and he's commissioning you to work alongside of him so that you take these hands and you exert. You know that God doesn't just take over your body and do everything for you? It's a really interesting statement that God must have a vehicle and he must do the work. However... He needs a willing vessel so that he will not force your hand onto someone or around someone's shoulder and then pull it close and give them a hug. He will not force your hand onto a bowl of water, grab a towel off the counter, pull it over, kneel you down, and wash someone's feet. He will move upon you to say, do it. And then you must obey. Obedience is the work. We must actively engage in agreeing with God. And then when we agree, what happens? There's grace to perform the task. We agree that God wants to do these six things. And we say, yes, Lord. Now I need some help here, God. And then he gives you the grace to do it. God has an ethic by which he works. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Could you imagine if we, should, we could take this into the modern work world of Christianity? Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Could you imagine if that was said of us as Christians? Oh yeah, Christians, if they say it, they'll do it. Instead, what do we say? Yeah, you don't want to work with Christians. They're the most untrustworthy. I know it's a sad statement. I've heard this so much. I know it's sad to admit it, but it's true. Christians are the worst tempers, too. I say, turn it on its head. Jesus is the best tipper that ever existed in all the earth and heavens. He is the one who gave everything. Undeserving he gave it. Let's do it right. We give of ourselves, and when we say we'll do it, we do it. God's work ethic, who do we represent? 
the king of all kings, who's working within us and through us, Jesus Christ. We work as he works. The 11 ethics of God's work. I'm going to go through these quickly. This is in the message in great detail of the Christian work ethic. If he starts a work, he finishes it. Now, in the Christian work ethic, I have all sorts of scripture backing up each one of these. I'm just going to read through them for you. If he starts a work, he finishes. He does not miscarry, he does not abort. He brings it to completion. This is who our God is. So if he's starting a work in you, you can have confidence he's intending to bring it to completion, okay? He does his work with joy. Could you imagine if we as a workforce of Christians did this? We start something, hey, we're going to finish it. We're going to do our work with joy. A little song, a little spring in our step. And someone could say, hey, that's miserable work. Ah, I don't care about that. I'm doing it for Jesus. We do everything to reveal the kingdom of heaven in and through us. You know, this is the same commission that is given to slaves, people in concentration camps, people in prison. We all behave the same way no matter our environments. It doesn't matter if we have a slave master whipping us, telling us to do the job. We still do it this way. Because this is God's work ethic. We don't do things because we feel like we should. We enjoy the work. We do it because he's the one working in and through us. He is compliant and submissive to his boss, accepting the most difficult tasks without without question. You could say, what? God is submissive to his boss? What a strange way of saying it. Jesus modeled this. And he was completely submissive to the father, his boss. It was called the father's business. And he was about it. And when the father gave him a commission, guess what? He didn't argue. He just did it. He was compliant, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. That's quite a worker. Quite amazing. He stays alert, focused, and on task, sober-minded always. He does not grow tired or weary. He is constant. It's called Noah Kekio here at Ellerslie, which is the concept of no flabbiness, no weariness. We stay sharp always. And I tell you what, boy, there's a lot of bait for us as men to get weary and tired. You don't allow an inch of it into your life. You stay focused. You stay sharp. You have a job to do. He controls his tongue. That would be a nice feature. He seeks another's wealth. He works not for applause, notoriety, and a promotion. He treats others as more important than himself. Now, I know I could go into each one of these, but I'm going to try and keep my word and work through these quick. He ceases labor and rests only at the appropriate time. He rests, but only at the appropriate time. How many of us look for a creative excuse to rest at the inappropriate times? It's like, no one will know. And so we kick our feet up onto the desk, stick on our headphones, or go to our Facebook account. At the moment, we shouldn't be resting. There is an appropriate time to rest. And rest is good. It's godly. But you rest at the appropriate time and not on God's clock, if you will. When he has you working, you're working. He does his work right. He does everything with unparalleled excellence. He is the best in his field. Yeah. You know, his creation work, pretty good. Pretty amazing. He even said it himself. That's good. That's very good. Okay? His work is perfect. He is marked by perfect integrity without spot or blemish. He is persistent and will overcome every obstacle in order to complete the job. You have a challenge in front of him, what will he do? He'll figure out a way around it or over it. He will. He, nothing will stop him from finishing his work. And how many of us, we run into a little obstacle, yeah, I can't do it. Well, I've done, there's certain things that Leslie, because I'm not very mechanical or, uh, I'm not the type of guy that you know, wears a, 
a construction belts and goes in and starts fixing things in the house, okay? My dad's uh, philosophy on it was, that's why I work the job I do, Eric, so I can hire someone else to do it. And so guess what philosophy I adapted? If I work hard, I can hire someone else to do it. And so Les is like, I need this fixed. And I'm... So finally, I get up the guts to try it, okay? And I start doing something. It's like, yeah, it won't work. It won't, I can't get it. Well, that's the exact opposite of Christ's work ethic. If I commit myself to a task, I'm going to see it through. Even if I have to call up one of my guy buddies and go, okay, Dan, I need you to come over. Just don't, <laughs> don't tell Leslie that I had you come over. We'll make it look like I did it. I wouldn't do that, so don't worry. Leslie always knows when I have to call Dan. <clears throat> He gives attention to detail, noticing the small things. He does his job well. You can always tell. If you're an employer and you have people working for you, you know the people that notice the small things. They deal with little things. It's the way they even position the note on your desk. It's the way that even when they come into your office, they notice that your trash needs to be taken out. And they take it out. Can I take your trash out for you? Sure. That's nice of you. Thank you. They notice the small things. Oh, light bulb out. I'm going to go run to the, uh, the cabinet. I'll get, I'll get one. I'll come right back in and change that for you. Well, thank you. That's Jesus. He notices the small things. He's wanting to change the light bulbs in our life. He's saying, you know what? I see something there. We're like, hey, my life. Let him come in. Let him train you in his work ethic. He's very good at it. Applying this ethic to our daily work. For this very God lives within us. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Heartily. Full exertion. A hundred percent givenness. If you remember the message, brave-hearted man, that's what the concept was. A hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time. You are always given. I know that sounds exhausting. It's impossible. I know. You know what I'm constantly doing in my life? I mean, there, were, there have been moments ever since I gave the brave-hearted man where I'm just like, whoo, knees knocking. I mean, literally. I've never felt so tired. It's like, why did I give that message? It's like, and I don't even have that strength. There's even a growl that I, I almost always have. It's like, no. But in these moments, it's like knees knocking. I'm like, no. I don't even have the growl to say it, but it's like, No. I will not. I mean, I sit down on the, on the couch or the chair, and the kids are like saying, Daddy, you know, can we wrestle? Rise up. Yeah. I don't even know that I'm going to stay awake on the way there. I get down on the floor in the wrestle position. I'm blacking out. I'm going in and out, and I have Dub trying to flip me over. <laughs> no! Stay focused. Your children need you now. Not tomorrow. They need you now. Now is the moment. And that's how a man lives. You are 100% present for the job at hand. Your time has not come to rest. And until that time comes to rest, and you'll take full advantage of it when it does, by the way. But until that time comes, you are present. In all thy ways, acknowledge him. In all thy ways. Not just part of your life. In all six dimensions, you acknowledge him. You do everything as unto the Lord. Whatsoever you do, all of it is done heartily. Every dimension of the six, done heartily. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Welcome to the endless sprint 
100% exertion, 100% of every minute for 100% of the rest of your life. Who wants to sign up for that? Most men cherish more than living a life well. They cherish their rest. What are they working for? They're working for retirement. You, ex- you know what that exposes in our culture? We're working to turn off as opposed to working to say, I'm working for the glory of God. I, I care less about retirement. I'm here for Jesus. I expect to die for Jesus. I'm not looking to find an escape somewhere in my future. Just travel around and, and feed me. I want to feed him. That's what motivates us as men. And it will change our paradigm the moment we do. We're not working for ease. We're working for him. And he doesn't stop. Noah Kekio, do not grow tired or weary. That they, they that wait upon the Lord shall run and not grow weary. Walk and not faint. And you could say, this is impossible. And he says, well, you know what? You put your confidence in God, and you look to him for it. And in this run, when you're running, you will not grow weary. When you walk, you will not faint. You have what you need. I know it seems impossible. It is in the natural. But we're talking about God. He's able to do this in and through you. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. For which cause, and speaking of the glory of God, we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Paul didn't go into early retirement. Paul spent himself and was ultimately beheaded. The man, if anyone deserved a break, if anyone deserved a vacation, it was Paul the apostle. And he's the one telling us, for the glory of God, we faint not. We do not let up. We do not grow tired and weary. We pray without ceasing. Whoa! Uh Uh-huh. It's impossible, I know. So I know how you might reason in this. It's like, this is one of these crazy guys. He just keeps pressing these points that are impossible. Yes! God's the one pressing them. He says, you can't do it, can you? No! But he says, I can. Let me have your life. Will you trust me to be all that I am in all you are? Introducing the sluggard. What is keeping us from living this life? You see, you have a propensity. The Proverbs refer to it as the slothful man or the sluggard. Isn't that a beautiful word? We used glutton last week. It's just such a disgusting word. It's like, I don't want to have anything to do with a glutton. It's just an ugly, juicy word. You know, it's just, it's like slathered with something. It's dripping. Ugh. Okay? The sluggard, sort of the similar thing. The word is atzal, atzal, technically, which means slothful sluggard. You'll notice the Proverbs will go back and they'll call it slothful, and then they'll call it sluggard. I do not know why they don't standardize it and use the same word every time, but they love creativity, I guess. Slothful or sluggard, the one who justified sleep. The man who lives for sleep and repose. The man paranoid of hard work. You know who the sluggard is today? The man working for retirement. And I'm not saying it's bad to go past a you know, have, be at the end of a career season to then spend yourself for the glory of God in the next season. That's not what I mean. I mean the man that is strategizing how he can find repose. That's his whole goal. Why is he working? Why are you working, uh, man? Well, I'm working to retire and retire well. So that I can live the latter years of my life for me. 
sluggard. And you're saying, he's working hard. He's a sluggard. He's working for himself. He's working for sleep. He's dreaming of the bed sheets. That's all he's doing. That's not work. We call it work, but that's not God's work. So it's the man paranoid of hard work. He wants it as easy as he can. You know how many uh, students we have going through high school and you ask them, what, are they gonna, what do they want to have for their future career? Their entire measurement is how much work it will take to get to the end that they want, which is a lot of money. They have a lifestyle in mind of ease and repose. And so their entire gauge and barometer is based on, well, how much work will that take? All right, so how quickly can I gain money? How quickly can I settle down and have the life that I want? That isn't Paul's reasoning. Jesus died at the age of 33, fully given. He wasn't planning his retirement. You could say, well, what's heaven then? That's your retirement. And I have a hunch that heaven is full of hard work. Just a hunch. Because God works. God's the one that invented work. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't need to be miserable. What the curse was is that it turned work into a grievous thing. Greater challenge was associated with it. But there's nothing wrong with the constant work. God was working before the curse started. Before it happened. There's nothing wrong with it. It's God. The lesson of the sluggard. Here we'll go into Proverbs 24. And God's given us a little peek into the sluggard. I went by the field of the slothful. Okay, that's the sluggard. And by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns. So this guy's been entrusted with a vineyard. You know, it's not looking too good. It's all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof. And the stone wall thereof was broken down. Great. Then I saw and considered it well. This is literally what it says. He sees it. He sees the vineyard of the sluggard, the slothful, and he considers it well. Should you? Uh Uh-huh. You should consider it well. The man who has not exerted himself in faith to Christ Jesus, and he's justified the nettles, the briars, and the broken down wall in his life. It's like, oh, come on. As if you're expecting me to maintain this thing to perfection? I mean, who could do that? Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that travels, and thy want as an armed man. There is not a man in here that wants to fit that description. I know it, okay? We do not want to be called the slothful or the sluggard. And so I want God, with his heat-seeking missile within us, to go in and explode any of this within our existence, to make us sharp, to make us ready, to make us soldiers ready for battle. Bombs are dropping around us, and we're deaf to it. We don't even recognize it. We turn up the volume of our music so loud that we don't recognize the bombs going off. There's artillery fire just outside of our tent, and we must be sharp, and we must be ready. This is not the time for rest. This is the time for labor for the king. Eight signs of the sloth. Isn't that an ugly word? Sloth. How many people's favorite animal is a sloth? Isn't that funny? It's just one of those animals that you, know, you have to sneer at and go, eh, I don't like the sloth. Why? Slow, he's lazy, he's just, he's just not what we're supposed to be. Eight signs of the sloth. First, he pines for his bed sheets. He just dreams all day long. And by, by the way, I've had seasons in my life where I've dreamt of my bed sheets. I've been on trips where all I can think about is my, is my bed 
back home. I can't wait to get home. And you're just dreaming. That's all you're doing. It's, oh, it's going to be so good. Okay? But that's what the sloth does. That's how he lives. He lives for the weekend. And he dreads Monday. That's the sloth. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? As the door turns upon its hinges, so does the slothful upon his bed. Isn't that a hilarious scripture? Number two, he irks his employers and thus struggles to keep a job. The sloth is a miserable employee. Okay, he's always looking for the easiest route. He's always, you know, cutting corners. He wants to do it easy. He wants the same pay, but he wants it with less work. Oh, just miserable. As vinegar to the teeth, as smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to them that send him. That's the employer. And it's as vinegar to the teeth, which sounds disgusting, by the way, and smoke to the eyes. That's the way a sluggard is to the one that says, hey, could you go do this job for me? Oh, vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. This sluggard can't figure out why his life never works. What's funny is the guy cannot seem to figure it. He's void of understanding. He doesn't see it, that his attitude towards life is what is causing this cyclical pattern of defeat. Why are the nettles here? Why do I have so many weeds and they don't? Why is it that my wall is broken down? Why is God so much against me? God's not against you. He's for you. However, you're against God. You're not coming to God and saying, God, could you correct this and make me a diligent man? The soul of the sluggard desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. In other words, the sluggard desires the good life, but he can't find it. He says he wants it in his selfish way. Number four, he is mystified. The sluggard is mystified why his efforts are always blocked. Why is it that no matter what I do, it's always being blocked? He blames it on everyone else. You ever notice that about a sluggard or about you? It's just like it's always someone else. It's society. It's the man that's doing it to me. Oh, can't believe it. If I didn't have all these barriers, I could really be successful. No, you couldn't. You're shooting yourself in the foot and wondering why you can't run a marathon. It's because you're shooting yourself in the foot. You don't see it, though. You're mystified why your efforts are always blocked. The way of the slothful man is as a hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. That's what it says right there in Proverbs. Quote, unquote. The way of the slothful man is as a hedge of thorns. No matter where you go, it's like, hey, I can't get through here. Why am I always impeded? It's because you're thinking about your bed sheets instead of the glory of God. Number five, he always has a reason for why he can't work hard today. Have you ever been around one of those? They always have a reason. They have a sniffle. Oh, their mom, you know, it's their birthday and they need to wait around to make a call at a certain hour and, you know, they'll only be available to it. They always have a reason. Always. I've been around these people. Always have something that they're conjuring up going, okay, this is how I can get out of work today. A sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. That's what it says in Scripture. Oh, it's cold out. I, I, I can't do the plowing today. And as a result, he will beg in the harvest. The slothful man says, there is a lion in the way. I shall be slain in the streets. Could you imagine all of us lock our doors? Oh, there's a lion out there. Life's challenging. Let's bar the doors. What does the Christian man do? A lion? How exciting. Let's go out and hunt lion today. You see, there's a different mentality. We are not intimidated by the challenges. 
Because we are not motivated by our own self-gain, we're motivated by God's gain. The slothful man is pathetic. Okay, sorry to be so blunt. The slothful hides his hand in his bosom. Okay, I always picture Napoleon. Hides his hand in his bosom, and it grieves him to bring it again to his mouth. Oh, come on. Do I, are you saying I need to pull my hand out and I literally pick up the piece of bread and bring it to my mouth? Could someone feed me? It grieves him. Oh, that's too much work. The slothful man is killed by his own slothfulness. The desire of the slothful kills him. That's what it says. I didn't come up with this. For his, hand refu- his hands refuse to labor. The sluggard thinks himself more brilliant than those around him. Isn't that funny? The whole while, all of us are looking at the sluggard going, what an idiot. And what does the sluggard think? They're looking at all of us that are like, you know, looking at him, saying, what an idiot. He's looking at all of us saying, what idiots. They don't recognize that there's ways around this. You don't have to work like that. I know the system. See, the slothful guy's brilliant to himself. He's got it all worked out. He just can't figure out why he gets these hedges of thorns that are blocking his way. He can't figure out why he's dying a slow and painful death. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. What an amazing statement. Okay, introducing the contrast. We'll call him the diligent. Karutz. You know what diligence means? Sharp. Sharp. If you're going into battle, you know what you want? You don't want a dull sword. If you're going to work and you, you, know, you have a saw blade, you don't want a dull saw blade. Just to cut lumber that day? You want to have a sharp axe. That's diligence. But a man who's going to keep his axe sharp has to be diligent. A sluggard has a dull axe. And every single one of us would know that. The sluggard shows up with his dull axe you know, and he can't figure out why he's not getting any work done. Hey, buddy, take care of your axe. You see, those of us that understand diligence, understand that sharp, pointed, refined as gold, diligent, spiritually toned, and ever ready for exertion. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to go. Even in the middle of the night, the bomb goes off. They jump up, grab their weaponry, and say, where do we need to go, general? Show me who needs to be fought. The diligent is sharp. Always tuned, ready, armed, dangerous for the glory of God. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Now, I know this is looking like it's only talking about like, material goods, but I want you to realize this is talking about soul goods. You want the substance of Christianity in those six arenas, you need to be diligent. But to be diligent, you must have a growl in your soul that refuses to drop your sword and says, 100%, 100% of the time. Even when you're doing that one thing that you don't feel like doing, I'm ready. I'm ready, God. I'm ready, and I'll do it well. I'll do it with joy because I'm doing this unto you. You're the little drummer boy playing your drum for your God. And you always play your best. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. The slothful man roasts not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious and prized. You know, this is a really interesting, interesting one in Psalm 12, 20, Proverbs 12, 27. The slothful man does not roast that which he got in hunting. So he kills something, but then doesn't roast it. Can't figure out why he's not eating that night. It's too much work to roast it. But the diligent man, when he gets something at hunting, prizes it. 
He cherishes it. How many of us get a truth? Like say at church this morning. We get a truth, but the slothful man won't roast it. He won't gain the benefit out of it. But the diligent man prizes that which he gets. He's gone hunting, and he got a prize. And he's going to make sure that he savors every inch of it. That's the diligent. They prize that which they gain. God has given you things. As you're seeking him, he's given you things. Prize those things. That's the mark of the diligent. See thou a man diligent in his business. He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before unknown men. Diligence of soul. I'm not just interested in your diligence being applied to your business ethic. I think it's great to have it applied there. I want it applied in your soul and your relationship with God. When you get up early in the morning, first of all, even getting up is diligence because it's not easy. But you give yourself to your God. You get up, and even if you're tired and you're wobbly need, you say, God, I'm here, and I'm going to be 100% here. Even if I'm starting to black out and I'm not fully present yet, I'm going to be as present as I am capable of being, and I need your grace to make me more present. I can't tell you how many prayer times I've had like that where I, I walk during my prayer times. Early in the morning, not the best time to get on your knees. You know, drool starts coming down out of your mouth. Many of us in here can testify to this. So I start walking, marching around the room. And I am literally, sometimes my brain is a fog. But this is my God's time. And I'm going to give him 100% of me. And I know, and I trust that he knows that I'm a little foggy at the moment. But I also trust that he has grace for help in time of need. Right now is my time of need because I need to do business with the, with the Most High God. And my prayer time is of extreme value to me. Okay? Diligence of soul. How about in your marriage? You're tired late at night, and that, isn't that always when your wife wants to talk? Why in the world do wives want to pick 10.30 to 11 at night? What is it about wives that are attracted to that hour? It's just like right at that point, something triggers, and they go, you know what? This is a great time to talk. I have a thought. And then the man is tested because most of the time he's thinking, this is how my mind works, I get tired based on how much time I'm going to have to sleep that night. So once it starts creeping under eight hours, I start to feel weak. So if I have to get up at four, at eight o'clock at night, it's like, oh boy, I'm feeling tired. It's really weird how that works. So I literally have to deny that and say, that is ridiculous. I am here on business. I have a job to do. This is one of the key arenas of my life, and it is not time to rest. So here I am. Now, what's funny with Leslie and I is Leslie doesn't like to change rooms when we're having a conversation because she feels like it'll ruin the rhythm of the conversation. So we're in the kitchen, and I have my glass, which I was going to set next to my bed. Okay, I was literally on my way into the bedroom. I was going to brush my teeth, take out my contacts, and I was going to find my way to those bed sheets. And Leslie has a conversation she wants to enter into, and I have my glass of water. And so I'm sort of aimed like this, looking back, going, yeah, yeah. And she's still standing there. And I get the point that she wants to talk. So I come back in there, and I'm still sort of leaning, leaning like this. I'm trying to sort of hint that, you know, it could be really good. We could continue this in the bathroom while I'm brushing my teeth. Oh, no. No, that's a threat to the conversation, because, Eric, I know you. You'll be brushing your teeth, and you'll forget what we were talking about out here. Okay, so what is my wife needing? 100%. She needs me to be focused. See, if you came up to me afterwards, I'd be focused on you. Why would I give any different to my wife at 11 o'clock at night? Well, because I have to get up. And, ah, my wife will understand. You may not. No. No such excuse. 100% for my God, 100% for my wife. How about my kids? Will they understand? Well, they may not understand. 
You know, when my dad was gone traveling on business growing up, I just wanted my dad. You know, and I would always hear the line that he's providing for us. Well, you know what? A little kid doesn't know how to articulate it, but it's like, Dad, I will go without all of this, and we'll live in a tent so that I can be with you. Kids just want to be with their parents. They don't even care if they're doing all sorts of weird, fun things. You don't just have to go to Disneyland. Just being and focused being. You know, I've, I've been around my kids where I have a deadline of something, and I'm like working on my computer. I'm like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they have a picture. Do you see this picture? Yeah, oh, great, great. That's not being with your kids. Technically, I was logging in a few hours with my kids. You know, then they had to get up from their naps right at a key point where I had to, I was in the middle of a thought. So I run back there, get the kids up, and they come back in, they're hanging on my legs. I'm like, yeah, daddy's just trying to finish this up. Every single one of us as men knows what this is like. This is challenging. And yes, there may be a point where you have to push send on the email, otherwise everything you've been doing all afternoon is worthless. But... Your children need you, and they need you. Not just you in the room, they need you in presence, in focus. So diligence of soul applies across the board. It's 100% givenness, 100% of the time, knowing that God will supply 100% of what he purchased on the cross to enable you to be 100% ready, active, and able to engage in whatever work you're doing. Look at Henry Martin. Now let me burn out for God. You see, the word burnout that we understand in our word is a bad word. But what this means is, I don't care what it costs me. Burn me out, God. Burn me out. If I'm your wick, burn me down to the very nub. Whatever I have is yours. Spend it for your glory. I'll die with my boots on. John praying hide. Has a, the guy gave himself to prayer for the, the country of India. I mean, just extraordinary stories. Hours upon hours, weeks on end, in agonizing prayer, carrying the burden of God for this country. And he started to experience an extreme chest pain, so his friend finally convinced him to go to the doctor for it. He didn't want to. And the doctor told him, he says, young man, I don't know what you're doing, but it's going to kill you if you don't stop it. What he was doing was praying. And what John Hyde said, and this isn't an actual direct quote. This is Eric's version of it. Well, I'm going to die with my boots on. This is what God has commissioned me to do, and I don't care what it costs me. As men, I don't care what it costs you to get right with your God and to spend your life on your God. I don't care what it costs you to spend your life on your wife and kids well. I don't care if you end up dying younger because of it. But may those in your life see the impossible life lived. The impossible life may end up ending up at 33 years of age with you on a cross. It did for Jesus. So be it if that's the case for you. That isn't your business. Your business is Jesus. Let him deal with the outflow of all the other arenas. How long you live. I would love to live to be 90 and have great grandchildren on my lap. That sounds fun. But that's not my business. My business is today. 100% given to that which God has entrusted me. Not to leave one arena behind. The sluggard of soul. Now listen to this. I have changed the terminology from being the slothful to the spiritually lazy. Because many of us, when it comes to the spiritual application of this, you might be hard workers. And you might be chuckling to yourself going, yeah, boy, this is a good message for all of them. 
But I want you to be watchful over your soul to recognize that diligence of soul must transcend to the inner man in our pursuit of God. So I went by the field of the spiritually lazy and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding or the significance of, who didn't understand the significance of maintaining diligence, ever readiness, and sobriety in his soul. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles had covered the face thereof and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw it and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yea, a little spiritual sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy spiritual poverty come as one that travels and thy spiritual ruin as an armed man. You must be sharp. Your spiritual life, if you do not maintain a constancy of givenness to it, and you enter even for an afternoon into the sluggard's perspective and say, you know what? I'm taking a break. I'm looking for some repose. You're literally dreaming of the spiritual bed sheets. I can't keep up this pace. Who told you that? Who told you you can't keep an absolute givenness to Jesus Christ for the rest of your life? Who said that to you? Who's the one convincing you? It's the natural realm. But I want you to look squarely at Scripture and say, but what does my God say? It says, those that wait upon the Lord will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. That is my God. And I trust that my God will give me rest in due season. He will make me lie down in green pastures. He gives gives his beloved sleep. He does. He'll take care of you. But you have to take care of the business that he's assigned you to and do it well. The labor of the soul to abide. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When you abide in Jesus, you'll bear fruit. That's the principle. Your job, your work, is to abide. That's what it says. It literally is your great endeavor is to abide every minute of every day. But to abide, do you know that you have to exert your soul? To abide. I'm going to abide. I'm going to remain in Christ. I'm not going to follow the bait. It's labor. It's exertion of soul to abide. I know abiding just sounds like, you know, lazing around. But abiding is hard work. It is labor. And we labor into our rest, which is the abiding. We labor into it. The solution to the life in shambles. When we get tired, when impossibilities stack up against our life, when the machinery of our life is breaking down, what should we do? What do most of us do when we get tired? Everything's just starting to fall apart. What do we do? We go on vacation. We come up with elaborate reasons. We quit jobs. We move here. You know, just moving to a different environment will solve our problems. When your life is beginning to break down, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad in and of themselves. It could be what God's leading you to do. But here's the primary of what God's leading you to do. Increase the exertion of the soul toward God. Don't lessen it. It's like, oh, it's this focus on God that must be killing me. No. More focus. Exert even more towards God. Pray more. Give more time. Your life is in ruins. You're spending five minutes with God. Give him three hours a day for a whole stretch of your life, and you'll see your life turn around like that. You see, we're not giving ourselves to first things first. And we're expecting our life to work. You deal with God. And you allow him to be the primary element of your life. And you will begin to see the ripple effect in every other arena. Increased time spent with the king. And you can say, I don't even have time. Well, that's when you begin to cut all other things out to make sure you have time. 
Mary working. This is a, this is a concept of 100% exertion. Mary, she's the one that sat at Jesus' feet. She's also the one that broke out her spike nard upon Jesus. That's a year's wages. And yet she poured it out on Jesus. So there's two different things. Martha's laboring, bustling around, working. And Mary looks like anti-work. She looks like she's not working. However, she's working. It's 100% exertion, finding 100% satisfaction in Jesus, 100% confidence in his word, and doing 100% of that which he commissions me to do with 100% confidence that he will enable me to perform that which he commands me to perform. Jesus boating. So we have Mary working, which is a strange-looking work. It's like she's sitting at Jesus' feet. How does that work? Well, how about Jesus falling asleep in the boat? And I'm going to call that working. He's doing what the Father commissions him to do. He only did that which his father was doing. His father says, hey, close your eyes. Well, that seems backwards, doesn't it? So we'll call this Jesus boating. 100% exertion. You're like, well, that doesn't seem like 100% exertion. Sure does when the boat's filling up with water. You know how hard it is to remain asleep? When your boat is filling up with water, everyone around you screaming and yelling. You're like, hey, guys, I'm obeying. What a bizarre thing that is. 100% exertion, finding 100% rest in the Father's direction. 100% confidence in the Father's outcome. Knowing with 100% assurance that the winds and the waves bow to the Father's authority. And knowing with 100% certitude the position we have in the Father. Let's go boating with Jesus. It doesn't matter if our boat starts filling up. Our work is to remain. Our work is to stay focused on the Father. What are you saying? Jesus, what do you want? He says, close your eyes right now and trust me. I trust that this storm that is around me is in your hands, and you can calm it. So I trust you. And going to sleep in that situation is a sleep of faith, not a sleep of despondency like you're trying to escape it. It's extraordinary. What we are called to is 100% exertion, and sometimes that means 100% exertion to sleep when we otherwise wouldn't. The heavenly food, the sustenance of the impossible life. I remember uh, realizing this concept of fasting that I remember Jesus making the statement. I'll read it for you. In the meanwhile, his disciples urged him saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have food to eat that you know not of. He has food to eat that others know not of. You see, he's doing the work of the Father and they're saying the only way you can do this is if you eat. He says, I have food that you know not of. I have something that you don't have. As Christians, we have food that others know not of. We call it heavenly food, the sustenance of the impossible life. Jesus. Strength and energy. You know that you cannot do what I've commissioned you to do? Strength and energy will fail you. I have strength and energy that you know not of. This would be the statement of my life. You could say, that's impossible. And here's what I would say. I have strength and energy that you know not of. It's a heavenly food. It is! I know what it is, and this is a very real thing to me. How about wisdom and mental resource? You can't pull it off. Could you imagine one of the things that a lot of us are struggling with, even as we're hearing this, is we can't imagine balancing all these things. I can't can't do all these things. Well, I have wisdom and mental resource that you know not of. It's not mine. It's given from heaven. It's manna. Daily you pick it up. The other nations don't have it, but we as Christians do. Go out and find your manna today. Financial provision and supply. Well, how in the world are you supposed to do all these things? How am I supposed to take care of a thousand orphans 
and not be doing the normal things that everyone else is doing to supply. I mean, most, people, most dads have a tough time supplying for a family of four, let alone a thousand kids. Pull a George Mueller. What does he say? I have financial provision and supply that you know not of. Do you have that? And this is the crux of everything we're saying. You have everything you need for the impossible life. But you have to take it. First of all, you have to believe that it's yours. Could you imagine seeing manna out your door and you're like, yeah, I don't know what that is. You know, it looks weird. You know, and someone else is out there gathering it and that's all they're eating? Like, how do you live off of that stuff? How do you do what you're doing? This works! They hold up the manna and wave it in front of you. This works! That's Jesus for us. This works. Jesus changes a man, and he makes him able to accomplish what otherwise would be impossible to accomplish. Six arenas of a man's life. Pick six of the following list and expect by the grace of God to be excellent in each arena. God, wife, kids, friends, family, business, and ministry. Pick six of them and expect to be successful in all six. That's Christianity. Okay? Holy Father, we love you and we trust you. And we know that you'll prove faithful to those of us that put their confidence in you. Show yourself mighty in our lives. It's in the precious name we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.